Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Here's a song that might well be familiar to you at this time of year. This sort of tune, with its medieval roots, remained popular in Elizabethan England. But this is curious, because at the same time, we see a radical transformation of the musical environment, and what music was expected to do. As the Protestants of Elizabeth's reign started to implement their Reformation, music started to change. It now had to serve a different purpose and marry up with a different set of criteria. The result was a complete overhaul of the music in churches up and down the land. But the consequences of this change weren't quite as straightforward as that suggests. To explore the complex effects of the Reformation on music in England, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr Jonathan Willis, Associate Professor in Early Modern History at the University of Birmingham and a Fellow of the Royal Historical Society. His books include Sin and Salvation in Reformation England and The Reformation of the Decalogue, exploring how the Reformation transformed the meaning of the Ten Commandments. But today we're going to be talking about his work, Church Music and Protestantism in Post-Reformation England. Dr Willis, welcome to Not Just the Tudors. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here. So I'm really interested to talk to you about this today because one thing that really struck me, I mean, you make this very clear in your work, but it hadn't dawned on me before, (laughs) was that music, you say, lay at the heart of the religious and social and cultural transformation that we call the Reformation. And yet it has been relatively neglected as a field of historical study. Why do you think this is? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question. And when I first started working on this, I felt like I was really struggling to gain traction just because there didn't seem to be a broader conversation about it. I think partly it's about some of the traditional disciplinary divides that have operated within history, within academia. I think the music was left to the musicologists and they were interested in notes and texts and performance, but not really always applying that to a kind of a broader historical context. Quite often, I think historians are just scared of those things. They're scared of the technical aspects of being able to read music and being able to critically appraise something. That's not really the approach I tend to take, but I think you don't need to be a trained musicologist to be able to appreciate the broader kind of cultural significance that music has. 
You quote in your work Balthazar Castiglione on his book of the courtier, the world is made of music and our soul framed after the very same sort. I wonder if you can, for the sense of context, give an idea of the kind of cultural understanding of music in Elizabethan England. That's something that I argue very strongly, that to understand or to make sense of what's going on in terms of debates around religious music and music more broadly in the 16th century. Actually, we have to go right back to the classical period. We have to go back to Plato and Aristotle, to a broader kind of philosophical understandings of music. And a lot of this language, I think, has come down to us today. I think we still have an idea of the harmony of the spheres. We still use musical language to describe various things. In the 16th century, I think it was pretty much accepted that the world was literally musical, that the universe was literally musical, that the same sort of harmonies and by harmonies contemporaries meant proportionality, the kind of relationships between discrete things. So the same kind of mathematical proportions underlying musical harmony also underlay the relationship between the planets of the solar system, underlay the natural world, underlay the functioning of the human body. So in a sense, all of these things, music itself, sort of audible music, humanity, divinity, the cosmos, they were all ruled by the same kind of rules of harmony or proportion. So in that sense, music speaks across a huge range of concerns in the early modern period. Now, we do have this major change at this time, the late medieval choral polyphony, sung by a small group of musicians in a foreign tongue, aka Latin, was no longer considered fit for purpose, in religious terms at least. So what sort of music was likely to be suitable for Elizabethan Protestants? Yeah, that's right. Erasmus, so going back to before the Reformation formally begins, I guess if we can put it that way, Erasmus is complaining that the music of the medieval church is three times removed from ordinary people. It's removed because of the use of the Latin language, and only a minority of people would have been able to speak and understand Latin. It's removed from them because the music of the medieval church is largely performed by the clergy. So it's the priests, ordained clergy, who are performing this music for God, essentially. And it's also removed from them because of stylistic elaboration. You mentioned polyphony, so the idea of many voices singing multiple sort of musical lines at the same time, often text was extended over very long phrases of music, so it was very heavily melismatic. So Protestants picked up on all three of those problems, really. Non-participation, Latin language, stylistic elaboration. The Reformation Protestants were really concerned that music, as it was being used in the medieval period, was essentially a distraction from worship. If you were sitting there in church and your mind was just wandering and you were enjoying the kind of sensual pleasure of the music, that was a distraction from thinking about God, which is what Protestants thought you ought to be thinking about when you were in church. A distraction from prayer, a distraction from education and edification. So when Protestants, speaking particularly about English Protestants of course here, started to think about the kinds of music that were acceptable, those were the things they zoomed in on. They wanted participation amongst a congregation. So. For the first time, the Reformation is where we see congregational singing in church. They wanted music in English, and so in the same way that the Book of Common Prayer provided a new English service, English language music, it was a much simpler form of music as well, much plainer, the words were easier to understand. And I guess the other thing that they added in, and this is really the influence of Calvin on England, because different Protestant traditions went off in slightly different 
directions, but they were really keen to stress that it was biblical language, really scripture ought to form the basis of the words that people sang in church. So not made up, not hymns as we would understand them today, but actually music from the book of Psalms, which were converted into kind of rhyming hymns of the Elizabethan period. Just a few thoughts in response to that. The first is that it feels to me there's a bit of a tension here between what you were talking about, the harmony of the world. The world is filled with music and that one could imagine, therefore, the worship would be a kind of tuning in to that heavenly music. And yet the sense that music as worship in church is going towards the word it's going towards making sure that the literal lyrics can be understood, that they're speaking the word of God, the Bible, and that the focus is very much on that. So it's music to convey word rather than music as the heavenly spheres. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, I think that's a really good way of putting it. And this is where lots of the tensions around music that sort of characterise the Tudor period come from, but certainly from a sort of a Calvinist perspective, and it's Calvinism which comes to dominate the sort of theology of the Church of England over the course of the Reformation. The biggest concern is idolatry in worship, so is the kind of misappropriation of the worship due to God, to anything, and that's one of the reasons why images are taken out of churches, images of the saints, images of the Virgin Mary, images of the crucified Christ, because the concern was that people would worship those images rather than the things that lay behind them, ultimately God, as the kind of source of all majesty and glory. So I think what they were really concerned with was the idea that the kind of technical artistry of music distracted from the valid function of music as a tool of prayer and praise. So there's this real anxiety around the kind of sensual aspects of music making and the ways in which people might give in to baser, more sensual urges rather than transporting their minds to holy things. So that's the kind of key anxiety in this period. That's really helpful. And that explains, I suppose, why these Protestants, many of whom are what we would refer to as Puritans, particularly Calvinists among them, aren't hostile to music per se, but it's about how it's used. So at a parish level, how then would the oral experience of church change under Elizabeth I? And were there continuities that we could point out as well? Yeah, I mean, I think the parish is really interesting because, as always with developments in sort of England over the course of the Reformation, you've got the theory of what ought to happen, and then you have the practice of how this is actually interpreted and made real by ordinary people. And so in that sense, ordinary people, I think, had a lot of agency in shaping the ways in which they experienced many of these changes. There are some key changes in terms of music along with the liturgy is now in English. It's not being performed by the priest or the clergy, it's being performed by the congregation. It's taking the form of these metrical psalms, which are first start off as a court phenomenon during the reign of Edward VI. They're sung by exiles during the reign of Mary, and they become a part of a staple of worship from the Elizabethan period for hundreds of years. In fact, Sternhold and Hopkins's metrical psalter, which is the kind of the bestseller edition of the English rhyming version of the Psalms is one of the most printed books in early modern England. There are millions of copies of this thing floating about by the end of the 16th century. That said, I think it's important to recognise that there are continuities as well 
In the parish, those continuities take the form of organs, carry on often in many places, at least a decade or two into Elizabeth's reign. Gradually, organs become a bit redundant, but in the early years, at least, I think they're helpful for teaching people the new tunes and keeping the congregation together. Anyone who's ever sung a hymn at a wedding or something like that will realise that there's a degree of inertia when congregations start to sing these kinds of things. There's also evidence, again, in often wealthier churches, urban churches, but that some small parish choirs, paid singers, lay singers continue. So there's this kind of really interesting period of kind of creative fusion between the new imperative towards vernacular music, congregational music, music that's easy to be understood and that's based on the scripture, but also some hangovers from the medieval period in terms of organs, choirs as well. And that's not even getting into the very different sets of traditions that you get in places like cathedrals or royal chapels, that sort of thing. It's so interesting because I've spent some time working on the French Calvinists in the late 16th century, who of course don't have churches of their own. In some cases they've taken over Catholic cathedrals and churches, but generally speaking they're building from the ground up and they have their own singer in each church and they're singing metrical psalms. And indeed one of the ways that Huguenots, as they're also known, can be identified is because they sing these songs as they work. And so in places where you're not really supposed to be a Protestant and they can give themselves away by singing these tunes or whistling them by accident because they're so catchy. And what's interesting to me there is that we've got a kind of shared community of Protestant experience across Europe. Although we're talking about England, we'll talk a bit more about how it works in England. That continuity, that shared experience is really interesting in itself, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's focusing on England, you tell a particular story, but it's important to remember that wider European context. And it's Martin Luther who initially makes music the centre of his own kind of religious programme. Luther is a great writer of hymns. He has an ear for a catchy tune, and as well as the incredible images and the sort of popular print, music is one of the key sort of weapons of the Reformation in that context. And as you say, this evolves into a reform context in France, in places like Calvinist Geneva. So when the English exiles leave England during the reign of Mary and they go and stay in places like Frankfurt and Wiesel in Geneva as well, that's where they adopt this practice of metrical psalmody. And in fact, some historians have suggested that this first becomes an Edwardian court tradition, partly influenced by the practice of stranger churches, foreign Protestant churches in London during the reign of Edward VI. And there is a tradition of certainly Dutch and French metrical psalmody, which is how these things come to England in the first place in a way. So it's a very European story, actually. And the unexpected consequence, the irony of the fact that psalm singing among the population becomes widespread because Protestants have escaped Mary and gone to Europe because of the crackdown on Protestantism in her reign, that actually the impact of that is that over the next 45 years of her sister's reign, church music as she knows it will be basically eradicated. Yeah, it is one of those nice kind of (laughs) ironies of Tudor history, and there are lots of them. That Yes, actually, during the reign of Edward VI, there is really quite widespread hostility to music. And the signs are not good. The signs are that it's really being clamped down on to a widespread extent. 
Probably the biggest foreign influence on England during the reign of Edward VI is Zurich and Heinrich Bullinger, who's the kind of leading figure in Zurich after the death of Ulrich Zwingli some years before during the Battle of Kappel. And in Zurich, under Zwingli, the organs are dismantled, the choirs are disbanded, music is just a distraction from worship, we need to get rid of it completely from church. And in some ways England is heading in that direction under Edward, and you're absolutely right. It's during the Marian exile, it's these groups of English Protestants who leave the country and form their own sort of stranger churches in places across the empire, Switzerland, France. That's where this practice of congregational singing becomes a staple of worship, and they bring that with them back when they come to England during the reign of Elizabeth. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10 year, 100,000 mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. This is After Dark. Myths, misdeeds and the paranormal. The podcast that takes you to the shadiest corners of the past, unpicking history's spookiest, strangest and most sinister stories. I'm Maddie Pelling. And I'm Anthony Delaney. Join us every Monday and Thursday and we'll take a look at the darker side of history from haunted pubs to Houdini to witch trials and arsenic-laced breakfasts. Follow After Dark, Myths, Misdeeds and the Paranormal wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. Do you think we could say that there is a role for music then in the Protestantization, slightly ugly word, but you know what I mean, in the making of Protestants among the English? I think it's really important thing to acknowledge. I think what are the ways in which people experience the changes of the Reformation in the most kind of immediate and direct and visceral ways. And it's often not through acts of parliament in an abstract sense, it's not through injunctions, it's not through works of theology or sort of polemical treatises, it's through the experience of worship, it's what happens in the parish church when they go there week in, week out, when children are born there, when people are married there, when people die and are buried in the church when they're there for the Sunday service and the sermon. I think that's the experience which really inculcates that sense of Protestant religious identity over a long period after the sort of legislative framework has been settled. And I think music is a big part of that. Music makes people really active agents in worship. There are signs that people just enjoyed it, actually. If people don't want to sing, it's difficult to make them sing. But sometimes people would sing for hours 
the place where the metrical psalms come to sit in worship is before and after the sermon. They're never actually formally part of, say, the communion service. It's before and after the sermon on a Sunday. And sermons in the Tudor period would usually be at least an hour. Sometimes an enthusiastic preacher might even turn the hourglass over and go into the second hour. So sermons were quite long affairs. And the fact that people wanted to stay there, maybe for an hour or so, by the side of that to sing these psalms as well, I think they did become genuinely popular, even to the point that the government in the 1570s decides to capitalise on this, I think. And when they start to bring in special celebrations for the 17th of November to celebrate the coronation of Elizabeth I, they issue kind of special versions of the metrical psalms for people to sing to celebrate the Queen. So I think the fact that the government is using them as a tool of propaganda in the 1570s is a sign of how popular they've become by that point. I suppose the counter question although this is a bit unfair because it's not primarily the focus of your work, but the counter question is, do we see music as resistance to Protestantization? There are people who've done work on this subsequently from when I was doing my book on this came out. I'd especially point to the work of Emily Murphy, who's a really excellent scholar of, of Catholic music. But yes, I think certainly there's evidence of, for example, people going into churches and singing the Latin Psalms in protest to the Englishification of worship during the reign of Elizabeth. And there are certainly examples of people singing Catholic music in a domestic context, in a household context. For example, probably the most famous Tudor composer, William Byrd, all really of his Latin motets and settings of the mass, liturgical music, would have been performed by Catholics in the household. They wouldn't have been heard in churches. They would have been performed quietly and secretly in a domestic setting. There's also evidence of people singing in prisons. So music definitely, and this is going a little bit back to what you were talking about in terms of the Huguenot experience in France, but music could definitely be a form of protest and a way to contest ideologies and contest particular uses of space, for example, or to create a kind of a different environment. You mentioned the use of music in private religious devotion. Have we got any way of knowing how widespread that was? Quantitatively, no. Qualitatively, for example, the fact that there are so many editions of the Metrical Psalter and also published in so many different sizes and formats and bound in with other kinds of texts suggests that this was certainly being used domestically as well as in church. It has been associated particularly with Puritans, again, so the idea of sort of Puritans gadding off to hear sermons and singing psalms, but I think it's much wider than just a Puritan practice. But there's lots of stuff published, actually, because obviously we've got 16th century is the age of the sort of maturity of print in England. So we have, for example, versions of the metrical psalms printed in multiple voice parts or printed with lute accompaniment. We have other kinds of books of uh, thumbs and kind of sacred songs. So again, thinking about Bird and Talis working together on the Cantiones Sacre, the kind of sacred songs that they publish around the middle of the reign of Elizabeth. So there's certainly a market for print. And in general, in the 16th century, Printers don't print stuff unless they think it's going to sell and make them money. So there's clearly a market for this in a domestic context as well. I suppose on a grander scale, music could also articulate community in the kind of common ceremonial of festivals. So I'm thinking of Christmas particularly. And traditionally speaking, I only know at a court level, but we see at sort of court of Henry VII, Henry VIII, 
performances by the king's players, the gentlemen of the king's chapel, and the children of the king's chapel, and you know we can see payments to them, so we know that they're doing this sort of thing during the twelve days of Christmas. How was music a feature of Christmas celebrations during Elizabeth's reign? I defer to your expertise when it comes to the court, but talking again more at the parish level, I think it's really interesting that you get the development of parallel musical tradition. So you have the kind of church-centred tradition with the psalms and things like that, but then you have genuinely popular traditions that grow alongside that. So there's the medieval tradition of caroling, caroling which initially accompanies religious festivals at various different points of the year but again during the 16th 17th centuries becomes more specifically associated with Christmas and there are different sorts of Christmas carols there are some that are quite religious in focus and over the course of the Reformation that shifts a little bit for example some of the more characteristic Catholic preoccupations like the Virgin Mary or contemplating the suffering of Christ on the cross those things start to leak out a little bit and Protestant carols are a little bit less meditative in some of those respects. But there's also a tradition of a more sort of popular caroling, sort of wassailing. People probably know some of the carols are still popular today that sort of talk about wassailing. And that's much more about just getting drunk with your friends and going around the village and seeing if you can pick up some charity or pick up some almost a bit like trick or treat, going from house to house and seeing what you can get from your neighbours or get from your community. So that tradition is there alongside, separate from, but alongside the religious traditions that we've been talking about, I think. So would it be fair to say that the Reformation is narrowing the gap between secular music making and church music? That's a really interesting question. In some ways, yes, I think, because it's making the people active performers of music. So in that sense, religious music is something which is owned by people much more than would have been the case before the Reformation. But I think there's also still this kind of sense in which there is this kind of music that we do in church, and then there are these kinds of music that we do out of church, such as enjoying ballads, rounds and catches, caroling at Christmas time. There's an attempt by Protestant writers to produce a new genre of specifically godly ballads during the reign of Elizabeth. And people largely reject those because they think we've got psalms for the church, we've got ballads that we enjoy at home, we don't need this kind of crossover thing. So I think people are very happy to exercise their tastes and to follow those and not be corralled too much. I think when the authorities try to manipulate them too much, they resist and say, actually, no, we like these things and these things, and we'll keep doing both, if that's all right with you. I wonder if we can reflect on what the study of music teaches us about the impact of the English Reformation. Does it help us answer the question of whether this is a traumatic break or a gradual accommodation? That, of course, is one of the key questions which Reformation historians have been and continue to struggle with. I think it helps us in some ways and not in others. I think the thing about music, both at the time and as a subject of study, is that it doesn't dictate a particular kind of outcome. It's a medium through which people can communicate all sorts of different things. So I think paying attention to music doesn't necessarily explain away or reconcile the trauma that was felt by some people and the euphoria that was felt by others at the loss of an old tradition and the embracing of a new one. I think it helps us to understand the processes through which people either came to terms with or adopted or shifted their beliefs 
I think it helps to explain some of the ways in which Protestantism spread and took root. So I think it helps to illustrate and explain the complexity. It doesn't simplify the picture, it just helps us to get to grips with it in a slightly different way. I think it really is very complicated still. One extra question before you go, Jonathan. Do we see the continuing influence of the Tudor period on our music, perhaps particularly on how we celebrate Christmas? I think it does in lots of different ways. I think lots of the carols, some of which are medieval in origin, but which are retained throughout, in spite of the Reformation, remain part of our musical picture today. So there are medieval carols, like the Coventry Carol, which starts off as part of a pageant from Corpus Christi, actually, in the Middle Ages, but which has come through today, carols like in Dulce Ubelo. And I think if you look at services of Nine Lessons and carols, the music of Tudor composers like William Byrd, Thomas Tallis, is still really prominent in those as well. So I think that kind of Tudor aesthetic is still very much a powerful ingredient of the way that we still celebrate Christmas, many of us today. Well, thank you for giving us a bit of an introduction to this complex subject and an insight into the way in which people's worlds were changing, musically speaking, at this time. It's been very clear and very informative. Thank you so very much. Thank you so very much. I've really enjoyed talking to you. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit and also to my researcher, Esther Arnott, and my producer, Rob Weinberg. We're always eager to hear from you, so do drop us a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on X, formerly known as Twitter, at notjusttudors. And please remember to rate, rank, bestow multiple stars, and comment on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find Not Just the Tudors. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.